The following lecture by Christopher Ridgway, the librarian of Castle Howard, Yorkshire, was presented at the School of Library Service, Columbia University, on Wednesday, the 11th of July. The title of the lecture is My Library and What I Do in It. This is a rare book school, Book Arts Press lecture. The introducer is Professor Terry Bellinger. Good evening. And welcome to the second in the series of Book Arts Press lectures this summer. The reason for tonight's speaker, I suppose, ultimately goes back to Nicholas Pickwood. Some years ago, many years ago now, I received a letter which I shall always cherish from Nicholas Pickwood, which said, I am contemplating lecturing in America, and so many of my British friends have told me that I'd better get in touch with you, that though I see no reason for this whatsoever, I am knuckling under to the pressure that was the start of a new career for our Nicholas. And uh, in the fullness of time, a letter came, somewhat more polite, but along the same lines from Christopher Ridgway, saying, I'm a friend of Nicholas Pickwood, and I don't quite understand why I'm writing this letter, but here I am. And here he is, Christopher Ridgway, talking about what he does for a living at Castle Howard. It's a great pleasure to welcome him back. Thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. Um, I shall be plunging you all into darkness in a few minutes and showing you some behind-the-scenes shots at Castle Howard and some of the things I do there. Um, but first, I'd like to just reflect a little bit on um, who or what I am supposed to be. In England, there's a fiendish joke that one can play on guests with large, bushy beards. At the end of the evening, the trick is as they retire to bed, to ask them whether they sleep with their beard inside the bedclothes or whether their beard rests outside on top of the blankets. Now, it's not a question one usually stops to consider, but for the guest, the result is invariably disastrous. There follows a sleepless night as the matter is self-consciously debated by the hirsute insomniac. <laughs> While I raise this anecdote not because I'm a member of such a vulnerable fraternity, nor indeed because I have fallen prey to such a joke, but I raise it because of late I have been preoccupied by an equally baffling and self-reflexive form of inquiry. Who or what is a country house librarian? Until I was invited to speak at Rare Book School, this was not a question I'd ever given much thought to. <laughs> and in any case, if it did cross my mind, the answer seemed palpably obvious. But as I began to consider the job description, I found myself puzzling over the two halves of the title, country house and librarian. Was there anything distinctive or unusual about the post of librarian in a country house? Was one a different kind of librarian? Were the principles of the job the same as those of any other librarian in, for example, a public or an institution, institutional library? Or was it simply a case of an unusual employer and a rather fancy place of work? Did indeed any of these distinctions matter? Well, the answer to all of these questions is, of course, the same as the response of the weary bearded guest the morning after. Well, yes and no. There's no doubt that the job is a hybrid one, uh, in spite of Dr. Johnson's deceptively straightforward definition of a librarian as one who has the care of a library. Unfortunately, Johnson doesn't include the term country house in his dictionary, 
But he does have an entry for curator, which picks up on the idea of to care. It seems apparently that the noun caretaker itself didn't exist until probably the middle of the 19th century. But according to Johnson, a curator is someone that has the care and superintendence of anything, a definition that he incidentally repeats for the word keeper. But it's a little disconcerting to find that for his illustrative example, he should cite the following line from Swift. The curators of Bedlam assure us that some lunatics are persons of honour. <laughs> Librarian, curator, keeper, superintendent, all these figures can have one thing in common, the care of books. And turning to the noun care in Johnson's dictionary, an interesting range of meanings is supplied. In the first instance, Johnson offers solicitude, anxiety, perturbation of mind, concern. Well, no problems here, I thought. We all have bad days at the office. Jobs all have their worry factor. Johnson then extends the meaning of care to include regard, charge, and heed in order to protect and preserve. Well, even better, I thought. I consider books to be precious in a physical as well as an intellectual sense. Well, then I spotted Johnson's next entry for care. It is a loose and vague word, implying attention or inclination in any degree, more or less. Well, this was a definition that was both reassuring and disconcerting. On the one hand, I felt that the elasticity of the word in this instance corresponded with my own understanding and experience as one who has the care of a library. But on the other hand, I remained uneasy partly because Johnson's focus on loose and vague seemed to suggest a critique of the amateur and dilettantish. The tone of the entry has a kind of censoriousness to it. And after all, if a term is semantically imprecise, what on earth does that imply with regard to a job or a profession? Can we, for example, imagine job advertisements today couched in such open-ended terms, an inclination in any degree more or less... <laughs> Well, fortunately at Castle Howard I answered no advertisement because there wasn't one, and I replaced no predecessor because there was nobody to replace. The job was more or less invented on the spot, following a written inquiry on my part to the family concerning their books. I had visited Castle Howard as a tourist, and unlike my companions that day, my inclination and attention had been less towards the collections of furniture and paintings and china in the rooms and more towards the collection of books which were manifestly in disarray. I wrote to the family, I didn't expect a reply, and a reply came, come and speak to us. And it really started from there. Castle Had, I perhaps should remind you, is still a private house in England. It is not managed or owned by the National Trust. It is still home to the Howard family. So I am responsible to the Howard family alone and to no other organisation or individual. Well, at the time, back in 1983, the job specification, such as it was, had a wonderfully Johnsonian vagueness and open-endedness to it. Initially, the sense of care meant, in principle, to sort out and catalogue the books. Wonderfully simple task. I'm still at it some six years later, and it's uh, getting longer and longer to do. And the job has developed also in many other ways. And as librarian, I wear a number of different hats, not all of them exclusively bookish. Well, with that in mind, I wonder if we could just turn the lights out and... Um
Well, I leave um, this first silhouette here for you just to consider. This actually is a silhouette of uh, Gibbon and Lord Sheffield. Um, but uh, bear this in mind, if you like, uh, to be the equivalent of the librarian and the country house owner. Who exactly is who um, and what are they saying to each other? Are they indeed as anonymous and blank as that? Historically, indeed, country house librarians are shadowy figures and they flit intermittently in and out of a house and its book collection. In some senses, they are an indulgence, not directly related to the economic machinery of a house and an estate. Indeed, I recall shortly after my appointment being introduced to a neighbouring landowner whose first words were, Good Lord, how can they afford a librarian? <laughs> well, I like to think now that places like Castle Had cannot afford not to have a librarian. Although librarians have rarely been a continuous feature in the way that an agent, a head gardener, gamekeeper or a forester have been in the traditional running of, a, of an estate. Indeed, those in charge of the chattels in the house, usually known as a steward or a housekeeper, would probably have concerned themselves almost exclusively with the quotidian running of the house. But having said that, it must be admitted that country house librarians although a reasonably rare species, have always existed and still do exist in a variety of guises. And perhaps they're more common than one might think. Today, Blenheim, Longleat, Chatsworth, Hatfield, Hokham, Bowood, Beaver, Annick, Burley, Arundel and Castle Ashby, to name but a few, all employ someone whose responsibilities include the care of the library. However, this individual often goes by a different name or title, such as archivist, keeper, curator, administrator, publicity officer, or even education officer. These individuals may work full-time, but often they're employed on a part-time basis. Sometimes they're retired people, sometimes students. In some instances, the owner himself usurps the role and is himself an authority on the library. So, for example, at Annick in Northumberland, the home of the Percy family, Book inquiries, as distinct from archive inquiries, are referred directly to the Duke of Northumberland. And similarly, at Longleat, the Marquis of Bath presides over some of the modern parts of the collection with the librarian in charge of the rest. So there is ample precedent for noblemen concerning themselves with their libraries, particularly if they were themselves keen collectors. But normally the care of the library was entrusted, if at all, to someone else. And traditionally, um, such individuals in a country house might have been employed primarily for another purpose. For example, they could be the family tutor, or the chaplain, or possibly the local parson, or even the steward, as was the case at Castle Howard in the late 19th century, when Charles Duthie, a man of enormous energies, compiled a set of detailed inventories of the contents of the whole house. <laughs> Alternatively, this individual might have been, for example, the personal secretary to the duke, earl, squire, or whoever, and their duties could have extended beyond the daily paperwork. And in some instances, of course, houses and families employed someone to attend to the books and manuscripts exclusively. There are many examples of that, but for it, we could cite the Dutchman Francis Junius, librarian to the Duke of Arundel in the 17th century, or indeed the renowned Thomas Frognall Dibdin, librarian to Lord Spencer at Althrop. But often, a catalogue is the work of an anonymous compiler, whose exact role and terms of employment remain unknown. This is the case with the compiler of the first manuscript catalogue in the Howard family, first substantial record of a collection of books at Castle Howard, 
really predates the building of Vanbrugh's Palace by one year. This catalogue was compiled in 1698 when the third Earl had a list of his books in his London home uh, in Soho Square drawn up. Well, this is bound in reverse calf and contains a neatly written alphabetical list of books with a shelf mark system. Um, just shelf mark system that is explained at the front of the catalogue. And the account books for this period indicate that the third Earl paid two pounds for the catalogue to be compiled and that the anonymous compiler's duties also included some secretarial work in addition to recording these 700 or so titles listed in this catalogue. Well, there are other catalogues at Castle Had. Uh, a very common example is this. Um, I can't really see how well it's... There. Anyway. Um, this is just one um, example of numerous notebooks with a few pages of listed titles. Every country house must have instances of this. Clearly, they were begun on a wet afternoon <laughs> when members of the family, usually the ladies if the handwriting is anything to go by, were bored and decided what a good idea it would be to catalogue the library. Well, after a few pages, their enthusiasm gives out as they probably realise the enormity of the task or far more likely, the weather improved or the dinner gong sounded. Had they been more determined to record the contents of the library, the family might have availed themselves of the services of a professional cataloguer. Now, it wasn't unusual for booksellers to offer this service, as we can see from the headed, uh, st um, headed stationery of Charles Parker, um, the bookseller from London. This is a bill of, about, of 1770 uh, where the fifth earl has purchased um, nine titles, but I'm more interested in the blurb at the top. Um, this states that Parker obviously sells all manner of books and stationery, but it finishes with the sentence, and gives the utmost value for any library or parcel of books, libraries, digested, message cards, engraved, etc. Well, the hint of gastric absorption in the word digested <laughs> can function perhaps as a metaphor for Charles Parker's business acumen or even as a description of the intellectual spin-off of the book trade. But its primary sense is more straightforward. And again, if we turn to Dr. Johnson's dictionary, he records the meaning as to distribute into various classes or repositories, to range or dispose methodically. Well, of course, in this context, any catalogue Parker might have compiled would in all probability have been a terminal one in the sense that it would have been a sale catalogue and therefore have signalled the disposal of parts of or indeed the whole of the library. Fortunately, such was not to be the case. Well, more recently, in the 1960s, a friend of the Howard family again undertook to catalogue the books at Castle Howard. Working in his vacations, this young man managed to list the entire books in the house. He compiled an author alphabetical card index to the library, which I inherited on my arrival. In one sense, that means I shouldn't have been employed at all. But unfortunately, while this was certainly the most comprehensive catalogue to date, it failed in a number of ways, and sadly had become obsolete almost as soon as it had been completed. Because, as was often the case at Castle Had, shortly after he finished the card index, all the books were moved around the house and their new, lo new locations were not recorded. This is really a very familiar state of affairs at Castle Had. It's reoccurred over hundreds of years. So uh, all his hard work really went to pot. Um, but it could be said that the cataloguer himself 
found this problem um, when he first arrived there. I'll just show you a quick couple of examples. Um, here you can see he has um, uh, a 16 set of, uh, volume set of Byron, but he lists them in various different um, bookcases. Uh, whilst he's assiduously listed their location, he never actually thought about putting the whole set back together again. Um, and we see the same thing here. Works of Pope, London, 1769 volumes, another set, um, nine volumes, volumes one, four to nine, in possibly HW stands for the High West. Well, it's not very encouraging to find this, um, but I don't want to, to blame this chap because he may not have had the authority to move the books around. Um, I'll just give you one last example, which seems very straightforward. Uh, William Morris, The Earthly Paradise. Now, the, the little um, uh, sigla here, DHC2, seems, again, very straightforward until you gather that the DH stands for a room called The Dark Hole. <laughs> I have never found this room to date at Carson <clears throat> As I say, I don't want to criticise my predecessor because he may not have had the authority to move the books around. And I was very lucky in this respect in that I was given carte blanche from the beginning. Um, but one can see from this catalogue quite clearly that no one really knew which books were where, if at all. And this roughly was the state of affairs I inherited when I arrived in 1983, faced with the mayhem of some 20,000 ill-organised volumes. What was different about 1983, though, was that suddenly books featured on the agenda. 1983 was the height of the post-Brideshead flush at Castle Howard. As part of the television contract, one of the rooms, destroyed in a fire earlier in the century, was rebuilt for the filming. At the same time, a second room was rebuilt, and this was designed to be the personal library of Lord Howard upon his retirement from the BBC that year. Now, my first task from Lord Howard was to be let loose in the house and to trawl through it for a selection of books for the new library. Thereafter, I was to assemble, sort out, and catalogue the rest of the collection. And, of course, this could only be done if they were given a fixed location, which I had the authority to go ahead and do. Now, Lord Howard, as one could see, really, from this rather bullish pose, was a man of enormous energies. And although he wasn't an avid collector, he was a man with a passion for books. And more importantly, he was someone who appreciated the depth and history of the collection at Castle Howard. He was also a man with a prodigious memory, and like all librarians I've met, he retained an impressive mental catalogue of the books. Indeed, once I was discussing general affairs with him, and he suddenly turned on me and said, what do you intend doing with the Irish bindings? Now, he had a habit of pouncing on you with questions like this, and I said, what Irish bindings? I've never seen any. Um, he leapt to his feet and commanded me to follow him. Uh, in his mind's eye, he knew exactly where these books were. Now, he wasn't, a lar he wasn't uh, in the best of health, and he was indeed quite a large man. And I had trouble keeping up with him as he marched to the other side of the house, leaving the private apartments and cutting a swathe through the bewildered tourists. <laughs> he wasn't wearing his caftan that day, although he used to wear caftans um, earlier on in the 70s. But... A quarter of a mile later, he burst into a small room where the house guides take their refreshment during the season and which contained some bookcases. 
Well, they were alarmed and perplexed at this vigorous entrance, and even more so when he manhandled their table to one side, spilling their tea, knelt down and pointed to a ten-volume set of Irish statutes in these wonderful Irish bindings. Now, it's a moment I won't forget, um, really, nor indeed do I expect will the guides forget it. Um, and I was ordered to remove this ten-volume set, um, there we are, the... Um, from uh, this room to the private apartments in the East Wing to uh, a drawing room that is known sometimes as the Gold Library. This um, bookcase here, um, this Kentian-style bookcase, was in fact uh, originally designed for porcelain and china, but um, the books have usurped it, I'm pleased to say. But I, I raised that anecdote about Lord Howe because it was a good indication of a man who really did know his collection and who loved it dearly, um, well, my other memorable experience from this period, which I will just uh, um, tell you about, is of a slightly more gothic nature, um, and occurred um, in this rather gloomy corridor, which was lit in order to photograph it. Um, I was working through a bookcase um, up here, one of the top bookcases um, in this West Wing corridor, and I had an encounter of a slightly more bizarre kind. I was stretching up to a set of books on the top shelf, uh, and I was aware as I extracted the book of something furry or hairy um, moving through the air. My immediate reaction was one of muted panic because I do not like spiders. But I looked around me and I couldn't really see anything apart from the dusty book in my hand until it was that I felt my tie seemed slightly heavier than usual. Um, I inspected it and clinging to the front of the tie at either edge were a tiny pair of claws and underneath it uh, I had disturbed a creature, um, this creature. Um, I was actually due to have an interview with Lord Howard about half an hour later and I was trying to work out what happened if I hadn't noticed this thing there. Um, this is a, an illustration from Buick's History of Quadrupeds. Um, the, the full page is here. Um, and I use this illustration because at one time I have toyed with the idea of giving a talk about the natural history of libraries. Um, it's not the only creature I've encountered at Castle Hat, and I'm sure there's a brilliant monograph to be written on the menagerie of living things that can be found in any library. Um, incidentally, Johnson has quite a good definition of bats in his dictionary, um, although I have to disagree with his final words, which says, um, it never grows tame, feeds upon flies, insect, and fatty substances such as candles, oils, and cheese, and appears only in the summer evenings when the weather is fine. Well, this one appeared when the librarian was around and seemed to be feeding even on the book that I picked it up from. I also um, disagree with... Uh, Buick's tailpiece, because uh, this suggests that bats only uh, inhabit Gothic romantic ruins, when indeed they can uh, inhabit in the inside of rather um, grandiose Van Brugian mansions. Um, I was also rather pleased to see that Terry Bellinger has put up a, um, a Gothic engraving from the works of Byron to illustrate my lecture on the poster outdoors, and that seems to capture this mood a little bit. Um, well, the end result of all this trawling through the house was to stock the new library with Lord Howard's choice of books, and in particular books relating to art, architecture, travel, and natural history. And this was, as I stress, intended to be a working library. Well, in the early 1980s, work had begun on building the new library in the gutted East Wing. And this really... Um, whoops, sorry, I need to go back... Um, 
is that in focus? I cannot see from here. Um, um, this is a shot of the shell of the building before any work begun. Um, and as you can see, that uh, a first floor story had to be put in above. This was all area, an area that suffered during the fire of 1940. Um, well, after three years of work, the library was finished. Um, this is just uh, one corner of it with these series of bookcases you see here. Uh, the sad thing is that Lord Howard died shortly after his retirement um, from the BBC in 1984, but he had lived long enough to see this room filled with the books that he'd um, chosen. Today, this room is the office, the working office of my boss, Lord Howard's son, Mr. Simon Howard. Um, and these are just a few other shots of the library. And built into it was uh, a secret door, which we see slightly ajar here. The door beyond is the main entrance to the library, although there are, in fact, three entrances to this room. Um, and there you have the secret door shut, um, and you really wouldn't know your way out of the room. Um, included in the selection of books in the library um, were... Um, some of Lord Howard's modern purchases, um, including um, the Trianon Press edition of Blake's watercolour designs for Gray's poems. Uh, I have just another picture here. The, um, he bought about four volumes of, of, of um, that. Uh, he didn't buy many books, as I say, but he did have one or two spectacular purchases. Uh, also included during this period um, was the Lion and Unicorn uh, Press, a limited edition of Captain Cook and Joseph Banks' Florilegium. And this is it, complete um, with box and the small prospectus that it was issued separately, which narrates the protracted and troubled history of this publishing venture. And the Castle Howard copy is one of ten um, special editions with extra plates and a cased specimen on the front cover. Um, and the other thing I always like about this is this is, is the um, subscribers list with George Howard's name there. Um, it's always pleasant to find books with families names, family members' names in the subscription list, and it's nice to find books that are, as it were, contemporary books rather than books from the 18th and the 19th century that had family names in the subscription list. Um, and it's also intriguing to think that had Lord Howard lived to enjoy his retirement fully, um, what other purchases he might have made for the library. Um, well, here we have another shot of the library. Um, the total number of books included in here is about 1,500, approximately about a twelfth of the collection at Castle Hat. Uh, the problem with this library, one problem is it, is it looks very good. It's, it's ornamentally rather fine, but there are certain practical problems, namely how to get up to the top shelves. Uh, a set of steps was commissioned to be built, but they somehow got forgotten uh, about and instead we have a rather antiquated but lovely um, set of steps from the 19th century which um, here my part-time assistant is having problems trying to work out how to get into them. Those, believe it or not, are the steps um, which begin to open up like that uh, and you can see how pleased he is now that he's got them open. <laughs> um, there, I, I do have to use those to get up to the top of the library. I'm not happy about doing it, partly because it's such a delightful piece of furniture, um, and I'm never sure whether something's going to, to, to break. So I tend to actually go and borrow a ladder from the housekeeper, um, which is not so exotic, I suppose. What about the rest of the books? Um, well, let me take you on a quick guided tour of the house, including some um, behind-the-scenes views. Uh, 
Much of the collection is housed in the Long Gallery in the west wing of the house. Um, and those of you who have visited Castle Howard will remember this. This is towards the end of the tour, a 192-foot-long room um, built in the west wing, which was added 50 years after Vanbrugh's um, designs um, by the third earl's brother-in-law. Now, <clears throat> you can see that... Um, the bookcases line the west walls between the windows, and many people do assume that the Long Gallery is the library, simply on account of the density of um, books and bookcases there. But the gallery hasn't always um, housed books. Here's a 19th century painting about 1804. You can see not a book or a bookcase in sight. Um, but some point in the 19th century, it was decided that this room really would be able to hold a lot of the books. So in 1826, the bookcases that are still there today were installed. And this is a lithograph from about 1850. You'll notice also that folio cabinets are there in the window bays. Uh, beyond this middle section, which is still there today, is known as the octagon. And you can spy bookcases there and then through to the north end uh, of the long gallery. And indeed, this room obviously became known as the library for a short period because by the end of the century, the east wall, too, had extra bookcases added into it. Um, these were movable ones as opposed to the ones on the west wall, which were fixed. Um, and indeed, this magazine refers to the Long Gallery as the library. But that is an appellation that has long since gone. Um, and a few modern shots. This is, again, from the octagon, where the four sides of it are lined with these large bookcases. Um, <clears throat> this is looking back south, down um, to the south front beyond. Uh, another example of the octagon bookcases. I apologize for this fungus around the top, but shortly before, no, shortly after taking this, um, uh, before, sorry, taking this picture, um, uh, the local ladies' flowers guild um, came and decorated the long gallery with some of their um, arrangements, and these were left behind. Um, and then this is the north end of the gallery, which you exit through to um, the chapel. Um, again, I would say there are about 5,000 titles in the Long Gallery, comprising mainly of literature, history, law, classics, uh, Italian and French books, too. Um, I spent uh, a very long winter in 1986 adding new shelves to these bookcases because they were ridiculously underfilled, uh, and it was essential that I maximise the space available. So I had new shelves built in order to uh, house an increasing number of books there. But if the picture I've painted so far suggests a degree of permanence in the locations of the book collection throughout the house, then uh, one needs to think again. It's not um, really the whims of each generation that have been responsible for the mobility of the books around the house, but in recent times, an event far more catastrophic. During the Second World War, Castle had played host to a girls' school um, which had been evacuated from the city. Um, uh, they managed, perhaps it's a little unfairly to put it this way, but they managed to set the place on fire. Um, this was not, I hasten to add, the result of enemy action. People think that it was the result of enemy action. It wasn't. Indeed, the irony was that the uh, authorities were extremely worried that the glare and glow from this fire was so great it would attract enemy planes um, who were bombing Hull some sort of uh, 50 miles away. Um, the dome um, was lost uh, up here, and something like 23 rooms uh, were burnt. Um, again, a few examples of, of the, the sheer damage. This is the Great Hall, I mean, which today, if you've walked through, you would have difficulty believing that it once looked like that. These are the remains of the cupola that have crashed down below. Um, 
And obviously the effect upon the context of the house was disastrous. Um, indeed, all the ornamental plasterwork uh, or wallpapers that had been there were, were obviously incinerated together with a great um, uh, number of treasures that were in the house. For example, um, well, this, this is just a shot, an outside shot. You can see here the gutted windows, empty windows, and no dome, which was the state of affairs until the 1960s when the dome was rebuilt. Um, but the tre among the treasures that were lost, this was known as the Canaletto Room, a pre-fire photograph. Now, a number of these were burnt. This Reynolds portrait wasn't because between the taking of this photograph and the fire, it had been moved to another part of the house. Um, that's still there. But a, a great deal of this furniture and some of these bronzes would have suffered, obviously, uh, in the fire. Um, Similarly, this dining room in the south front, um, which was two rooms knocked into one, especially done so for the uh, visit of Queen Victoria in the 1850s, completely incinerated. If you bear that vista in mind, that was the same vista after the fire, looking right down the south front. Obviously, everything's been cleared, and it's in exactly one of these kinds of shells that the new library in the 1980s was built. But a great many rooms on the ground floor and above remain in this condition today, as I'll be showing you. Um, a lot of people don't realize that when they go around the house. And one of the main consequences of the fire was with so much of the building being open to the skies, those treasures and chattels that had survived had obviously to be redistributed throughout the house to safer places. And it might sound, might sound ironic, considering the size of Castle Howard, but there was an immense pressure on available space. And, of course, the books suffered in this operation. Um, if we just look again, this is a picture of the south front today. This whole range here is still burnt, um, and it's simply a storage area. The whole of the building is re-roofed, I mean, with a sort of permanent temporary roof. This, uh, with the shutters here, is the new library. Uh, this central three windows is the garden hall, which was restored for um, Brideshead. The next three windows on the central block are an exhibition room, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Upstairs is storage space, which um, I will show you. Um, and a lot of the books um, were stored there, and still a number of them are, but I'm trying to feed them into different parts of the house. Um, these are the kinds of problems we have. These are some of those bookcases that you saw in the 19th century photograph, but here you see the bare stone walls up above. This is simply on the top floor. Uh, I'm trying all the time to pull books out of this area. Uh, this is the same part. Um, it is not satisfactory. But having said that, it's a lot better than how the books used to be, which was just lying around on the floor. Um, and nor should one really kind of criticise the family ferociously for neglect. Um, there were just so many things to do. Um, and obviously more valuable or more obviously valuable things took priority, especially paintings and furniture. But gradually, as I say, this stuff is getting fed into other parts of the house. Um, so I feed them into all available corridors and passageways. You can see the, the sort of miscellany of bookcases along this passageway known as the Oak Landing. Um, so not only am I faced with the task of, if you like, finding the books, putting volumes two, three, and four back together with volume one, but I'm trying to make the maximum use of shelf space available. Um, and so I'm trying to store books in every available nook and cranny. Um, and similarly, downstairs, we see here, um, this is a bookcase, a glass-fronted bookcase, which was intended originally, a whole series of these along the corridor, to house China. 
but um, within the last 30 years, the books have managed to usurp the, uh, these cases, and we can store a lot of books down here. Um, that, again, is, is, is um, my temporary assistant. Uh, now, only a few books were really damaged in the fire in the sense of being incinerated, although some did suffer water damage, partly because of um, the fireman's action, but some of the books that were thrown outdoors to um, escape the fire landed on the lawn, which sounds a great idea until, of course, it started to rain. It was a massive elemental pincer movement, the fire and the rain, um, on, on the collection. But generally, over the years, the book collection has received very little attention. And consequently, since the early 1980s, um, I have a volunteer conservation program um, which has been in operation with visits twice a week from these volunteers belonging to the English Association NADFAS, which is known as the National Association of Decorative and Fine Arts Societies. Um, on bad days, we call NADFAS by another uh, description. Um, uh, these ladies are trained by Nicholas Pickwode um, and his assistants, so that ensures that the books do not, as can often be the case, suffer more harm than good in the course of treatment. And again, despite the premium on space in the house, I managed to squeeze this room uh, out of the family for a permanent base for their operations. Um, so this is a book treatment room on the ground floor. Uh, and again, if you, if you bear in mind, as I say, the premium on space, this was a, a wonderful concession to have got out of the family. Um, other improvements, um, most of you will laugh at this, but having a trolley, like getting a trolley at Castle Howe was like the invention of the wheel, I can tell you. I'm sure this is no big deal to most of you over here, but um, whilst we move ahead rapidly in some areas at Castle Howard with um, computerisation and so on, it's these very elementary things that get left behind. So we have this trolley here, which saves the ladies scurrying backwards and forwards with two books at a time from their treatment room to the bookcases. It's also worthwhile um, bearing in mind that, of course, the distance from this room to, say, the north end of the gallery and back again is about a quarter of a mile. Now, if they're going to do that repeatedly all day, they won't have time to treat the books. Um, so the, wheel, the, the trolley actually was, was quite important. We needed to consider its wheels, too, in the sense that having polished floors uh, all through the house, we had to be absolutely certain it didn't leave any traces. Uh, and it, this is, again, I mean, just a straightforward shot of, of the books being returned. Whenever the books are removed, we, we do have notices up saying that, that restoration work is in progress. The family is very keen for people to realise that... Um, the contents of the house are receiving attention. Um, the trolley itself does attract a great deal of attention, not only because of its colour, but because of these British Library posters that I've bedecked it with, um, which I think is, uh, rather sort of overstates the case, but um, is tremendously important. Um, and I even give the, the ladies a few more of them to think about. Um, <clears throat> But I like this because it gives the books a high profile in the house, um, which traditionally books never really have had in um, country houses. Yeah. Well, moving on from the daily routine and whereabouts of the library, uh, just let me tell you about some of the larger projects that run adjacent to the cataloguing and maintenance of the collection. And really, this is the research side of the job. Um, it's, of course, by far the most interesting aspect of the job since the research opportunities are almost limitless, and my boss is very happy for me to get involved in any of these. Um, 
just let me give you at random some of the small following projects. This is a, a collection upstairs of temperance literature dating from the time of the Ninth Countess at the end of the last century. Now, the more I gathered these books together during my travels through the house, the more I realized that these volumes constituted a very interesting little collection in themselves. Now, I can't say that the subject per se holds a great deal of personal appeal, but this clutch of books, as with so many others, does represent an important part of the narrative of the house, the family, and the library. Well, this collection extends from the rather sickly, pious fables to histories of alcohol and its medical effects, uh, including such um, wonderful titles as um, uh, The Life Expectancy of a Pub Owner, um, (laughs) And there are even some volumes on uh, prohibition in the United States. Uh, Here are just a few examples. Uh, I I illustrate this one because a lot of them have lovely pastel um, book cloth covers, um, uh, which actually rather belies the the slightly dull material inside. Uh, And then this, which is my favourite, with the little maxim underneath, um, grape juice kills more than grape shot. Um, I know at least one person who would not agree with that in the audience. Um, I also found um, this wonderful whole bunch of pledge cards from the Blue Ribbon Army. I pledge my word and honour, helping me to abstain from all intoxicating drinks. Um, uh, I gather those are being um, handed out at the reception afterwards for you to all fill in. Um, Responsible for all this was um, Rosalind Howard, Ninth Countess, a formidable woman, although in this photograph it's hard to say whether the flower arrangement behind her isn't more formidable. Um, She was a lifelong supporter of teetotalism, uh, was president of the National British Association for Women's Temperance. Uh, She was also a champion of women's political rights. Um, Well, that's just one area that I'm involved in at the moment. Uh, Adjacent to that bookcase is this one, which is uh, some of the collection of children's books, dating mostly from the 19th century, Uh, again from the time of the ninth Earl and Countess, who had a large family of 11 children. Now, not only are the children books delightful in themselves, but the volumes are richly inscribed with signatures and messages from each member of the family to each other on various occasions, Christmas, birthdays, and Easters. And indeed, when one of the children perhaps died young, you see another signature taking its place, becoming the property of the next child. So those themselves tell a fascinating story. Um, the other reason that they're so interesting is that George Howard, the ninth Earl, was himself an artist, um, And they knew a number of the artistic figures of the day, including Holman Hunt, Burne Jones, William Morris, Walter Crane. And so it's hardly surprising that the house should contain um, so many examples of these individuals' work. Well, again, as these books were gathered together, it became apparent that here was another wonderful constituency in the collection. I'll just run through a few, again, almost random examples. Um, Here, Walter Crane, and we have a number of his books, some of which were personally dedicated to the Ninth Countess. Um, and these are full of uh, really wonderful, um, interesting detail and, and narrative. i just give you my favourite two shots here, which is Pothook's um, career. Uh, you see he stops at the fence here, and that's what happens on the other side. Um, and then um, amongst this is Doyle's um, illustrations to William Allingham's in Fairyland, with its really vibrant um, colour wood engravings executed by... Edmund Evans, here we see this. Uh, The wonderful thing was that two days before I left to fly out here, I found another two copies of this book. I'm still finding books at Castle Hill. Then there are numerous volumes, too, of Randolph Caldicott's work, including perhaps my favourite, which until I read it in great detail, I didn't realise had such a sad ending to it um, that... uh, 
when they're disturbed and he exits from the, uh, the house when the cats invade, uh, and he a wonderful little uh, exit line there, and the story ends as he's hopping home, and I didn't realise, I, I never read it as a child, that he gets gobbled up by the duck, um, which is very sad. Um, amongst all the other children's books, I mean, you can find examples with illustrations by Lear, Rackham, Dulac, Greenaway, Morris. I mean, it goes on and on. But I show these pictures not simply because they're delightful in themselves and perhaps welcome at the end of... Uh, a full day's class, but because we are hoping to exhibit um, these at Castle Howard in the near future, um, with a special um, emphasis upon these books being children's books for children to look at. Of course, adults love looking at children's books, but um, we'd like to think that children um, would look at these because, of course, um, they're probably very unfamiliar with a lot of these, as indeed I found myself. Um, there are plenty of other things that occupy their visual um, attention today. But we are hoping to have an exhibition of this. Uh, and I was very interested to uh, hear in my seminars uh, this week talking about, in fact, the physical positioning of things for children to look at in exhibitions um, is terrifically important. And that's something I hadn't taken on board. And we need to make sure that the cases or whatever uh, are there for children to be able to, to climb up and have a look at safely. Um, just the last example, um, which again um, is Charles Bennett's illustrations to Aesop. Um, now this is one of many editions of Aesop in the collection and uh, another small project I've been working on is the tradition of illustrating Aesop. And again we're hoping to hold a small exhibition showing that from the examples in the collection which range from the 17th to the 20th century. Um, and again, <coughs> these are just some examples. I, I, I think this is a tremendous uh, picture with this really wonderful um, hair here, which predates Tenniel's uh, rabbit in Alice in Wonderland by six years. Um, of course, in Bennett's hands, these fables became wonderful um, um, vehicles for, 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 for satirical comment on Victorian manners and greed and hypocrisy. Uh, and then my, my favourite one, which is the dog and his shadow, which cleverly recalls uh, on the uh, wall here one of the early 17th century designs um, with the traditional way of depicting that um, fable. Well, before leaving the children's and illustrated books of the 19th century, it's perhaps appropriate to close with a mention of the Ninth Earl's own publication. In 1910, one year before his death, he published his own illustrated volume, A Picture Songbook, um, and it consists of a series of popular is my office. Um, just an office. But again, bear in mind, I managed to squeeze this out of the family for a permanent centre for operations for books. All in all, I'm gradually taking over the house for books, and that's how it should be. Um, they're simply ca um, housed in here are, are current periodicals, but some of the more valuable books which I felt shouldn't have been in open cases in the public rooms. Again, security was non-existent when I arrived, and we had to take great care of that. Um, this is adjacent to the new library, um, so that whole area of the house is now devoted, if you like, to books. Um, inside this are also some that my office are bound collections of Piranesi prints and some ornithological and architectural books. But perhaps the most exciting item in, in the office is um, this manuscript, which I found quite by accident two years ago among a pile of books in a remote part of the house. And this is a hitherto unrecorded copy of Edmund Spencer's prose treatise, A View of the Present State of Ireland. Um, the hand is early 17th century, and the copy may have been a companion one to a royal copy for James I. Now, although I haven't had time to collate it, you can see how, how consistently neat the secretary hand is all the way through. Um, uh, 
I do know that uh, the title page material alone um, is sufficient to make this a very, very interesting uh, manuscript. The particular thrill, of course, of having um, found this was that I did my doctorate in Spencer, and so it's not every day you come across a new um, Spencer document. Um, if we could just change the drum, please. <coughs> Thanks. Um, this is ju that's just a sort of hint of some of the research projects that have spun out of the um, first physical assembly of the books and then their organisation as cataloging gets underway. Cataloging gets underway. Um, but one of my other areas of involvement, which I just briefly want to talk about, is what I refer to as detective work. Now, in the course of the 20th century, the collection at Castle Howard has suffered two great dispersals. Um, and the first occurred after the death of the ninth Earl and Countess. This is a picture of them in their younger days, obviously. But the ninth Earl died in 1911 and his wife in 1921. And according to the provisions of their will, <clears throat> the huge family estates were divided up between their children. They didn't really believe in primogeniture in the strict sense of the term. So, amongst other things, the library too was divided up between the two principal homes, Castle Howard and the old family home of Nowarth Castle in Cumbria, close to the Scottish border. Uh, this is what some people would refer to as a real castle. Um, the consequence of this was that it would never be possible to talk about the library at Castle Howard in the same singular way ever again. Now, there is fortunately a list of which books were sent where, although this has survived more by accident than by design, and one of my tasks is to attempt to reconstruct on paper, historically, the library when at its peak at the turn of the century. Now, unfortunately, it's hard to know what the rationale for selection was. The list runs to some 25 um, close-typed pages like this, and the correspondence for the period talks about some 20 chests of books being transported between the two homes. Um, the problem is further exacerbated because the Nowarth branch of the family have subsequently sold all the books that went up there and no record remains. But to date it does seem that the selection was haphazard and indeed slapdash. And I'll just bring you this example which I've highlighted here. Um, is Bale's image of both churches. Now the list you'll see records the details here and then says volume one only which, sure enough, left Castle Howard and went up to Nowarth. But clearly, the compiler, or the selector even, didn't know that the work exists as three volumes. And rather frustratingly, volumes two and three are at Castle Howard today. But, of course, volume one has disappeared for good. Well, I take this opportunity to ask you all here to rack your brains or to consult your provenance files on returning home to see if any of these volumes have turned up in your special collections across the country. I really would be um, very happy to know just where these books have, have um, ended up. Um, they're likely to contain one of several book plates. This is um, one specially designed for the Ninth Earl and Countess um, with a rather vigorous lion on the top here. Uh, and the family motto, volo non valio, meaning I am willing but not able. That actually has been changed in the last generation. Um, uh, in fact, I can't remember what the current motto is, but it's a lot more positive than that, I can tell you. Um, the other book plate that the um, books are likely to contain is the book plate of this man, Sir David Dundas, who was a great friend of the family, who left a large and valuable collection in 1877 to the, the Howard family. And uh, this commemorative book plate was made for the occasion. Um, there are still a number of Dundas books at Castle Howard today, but certainly um, not all of them. 
Uh, and from time to time, they do come up on the market, but it's not always easy um, to reacquire them. I have a minuscule acquisitions budget, and it's quite possible that a couple of purchases would exhaust that in one go. Um, the other great dispersal this century was, of course, as a result of this event. Um, the fire not only destroyed large parts of the house and its treasures, but it forced the trustees in 1944 to begin selling off some of the chattels to raise money. Um, they panicked because half the place was open to the skies, two sons had died in the war, nobody really knew what the future was going to be like. Well, nearly 1,000 of the choicest and rarest books were dispersed in a sequence of three auctions at Hodgson's in London. Um, this is just one of the catalogues. Um, it's tragic reading. Um, it really is. Um, I'll just give you one example in, uh, in here. Uh, this is one, some of the manuscripts that went. This is the 15th, 15th century manuscript um, with, I mean, Sir John Mandeville's travels and so on and so on and so on. 180 pounds. Uh, and the other heart, um, prices are really quite heartbreaking. The Caxton went then as well. So obviously we're not going to reacquire those. Um, we couldn't afford to, even if they did come up on the market. But a lot of these, we don't know where they've turned up. Um, I do know that the uh, Gower manuscript is currently at Harvard. But again, if you ever find any record of this in your provenance files, I would really be delighted to, to know. Well, apart from that, um, all, I'm also in the process of reconstructing on paper um, the Third Earl's catalogue, which I began with, um, compiled by that anonymous predecessor. This is a picture of him shortly after the building of Castle Howard. The Third Earl, of course, was responsible for the building of Castle Howard beginning in 1699. Um, and there we see um, the catalogue title page again. Um, <clears throat> what we hope between now and 19... Um, 88-89, i.e. the tercentenary of this catalogue and the building of Castle Hat, to attempt to rebuild as much of the collection as possible. This is the uh, distinguishing mark that we find at the front. Um, this is from the first catalogue. This is from a slightly later one. Um, so it is possible to track down these books um, that remain in the collection today and identify them against um, the list that we've got very neatly there. Um, now, I'm hoping to reconstruct that uh, collection by 1998, or at least have an exhibition on the difficulties and, indeed, impossibilities of reconstructing it fully, um, because, obviously, prices are prohibitive. And, indeed, some of these volumes are pretty difficult to uh, identify. I mean, here, Cleveland's poems, well, they could refer to any one of a number uh, of editions, but we shall try, at any rate. Um, and I've also, in the last year, catalogued um, the residue of this man, Lord William Howard's library, um, who is an early ancestor of the family, who lived up at Nowth Castle, again in Cumbria. Uh, he died in 1640, having acquired a considerable collection, many manuscripts, and indeed the Caxton date from his collection. And I have been up there at Nowth, um, cataloguing the residue of this collection in this rather wonderful tower, uh, up here, freezing cold it was. Um, this is what the, the residue of the collection in this tiny little room here. Um, really, again, about 180 books, no more. Um, and again, I show you just an example of his signature, Will Howard Noward, yeah, um, just in the hope that you might recollect it or you may go away remembering it. Um, as you can see from that title, Lord ha William Howard was a Catholic. Uh, he was a recusant, um, unlike the rest of the family, who are not. Um, they have always been Anglicans. Well, just really to, to close, um, 
I, I've mentioned several times how I've plan, I'm planning exhibitions for the future. I'm also responsible for small exhibitions in the house each year um, which record current restoration work. Here, for example, is, it, these are essentially photographic, but this is this cabinet room I referred to in the south front. Now, it is draped in blue cloth, but if you take the cloth away, it is simply the bare stone shell. We um, bought uh, a set of floorboards from a demolition sale from another castle, our irony there when so easily it could have been our floorboards in the 1940s that were flogged off in a demolition sale. Um, and this is simply, um, as you, I mean, half these pictures you'll recognise I've shown you already. Uh, and this tells the story of various um, <coughs> aspects of restoration work that are going on in the house, particularly in the grounds too. Mr Howard has begun a very large three-year project on restoring all the waterworks and lakes and fountains, which is nearly coming to completion. Uh, and I simply go around photographing a lot of this um, and blowing it up. And we have just a, just a small photographic um, exhibition, which again... Uh, gives the work going on in the house high profile and it's amazing how visitors are very, very interested and like to know that. They often think that these places sustain themselves like some fairy building, but of course they don't. Um, and this is the other side. Uh, just here is a painting that we've recently had restored um, with a small exhibition about that. This painting um, shows the seventh Earl and his retinue when he was Lord Lieutenant of Ireland in the 1850s. When this painting was restored, seven heads came back into view that had been painted out at a later date. Um, this man, um, this woman... Um, this woman, this man, and a couple of others. We don't know why they were painted out, but again, this is the sort of thing I'm set to do, to find out, uh, research it, try and put some pictures together, and tell just this little story. Okay, it's only one painting in a big 10,000-acre estate, but it makes an interesting narrative in itself. Um, uh, similarly, we restored um, some William Morris wallpaper here. Um, this is one of the few remaining rooms that had Morris wallpaper in it, uh, at one point, Morris wallpaper was throughout the house, as you can just make out in the distance here, are photographic examples surrounding a grid plan of the house and showing how many different colours there were throughout the house. Well, again, um, we knocked a wall down in order to enlarge a room, but we wanted to save the paper, so we had tackled the wall from behind, taking the brickwork away until there was just paper left, and then removed the paper and had it conserved, and now it's specially framed. We also um, got hold of the original Morris blocks, and made some new paper to fill um, some of the blank spaces of the walls. So this is, again, another little exhibition. They're all over the house. Fortunately, they're sprouting up like mushrooms. Um, and, and that, I think, is a good idea because people, as I say, are interested in what's going on. <clears throat> well, that really um, is about all, all I, I have to say. I mean, there, there's plenty of work going on outdoors. Uh, I go out and photograph a lot of that. But again, with a view to coming back in, looking at our resources, trying to find out the history of things, uh, writing it up, making exhibitions, um, and that obviously is one of the most exciting parts of the job. But I think, as you can see, it's, it's, a, it's a job that has many aspects to it, um, and I'm very fortunate to be able to have that job. Thank you for listening.